Zechariah, here we are. This is week 11, which I think officially marks our longest sermon season that we've ever done. I think I usually get bored and wrap them up after 10, but here we are in 11, and then we've got 12 next week. So we're in the book of Zechariah. If you've missed this entire summer, go back on our YouTube and catch them. We've walked through every minor prophet uh, throughout the Old Testament, and here's where we're at with the book of Zechariah. Number one, Zechariah is wildly prophetic. I mean, crazy prophetic. I think there's 14 chapters, and outside of the first three, everything revolves around some sort of prophetic vision. And for those of you that, that are, are Bible students and you understand this, most of the minor prophets are prophetic, and I have stayed away from most of the prophetic visions that they have had simply because it would hijack the whole season, okay? So we've gone a more applicable route, but... This is a crazy prophetic book. You can read the book of Zechariah and you can see everything from the prophecy of Jesus riding in on a colt to the good shepherd arriving to Jesus being betrayed for 30, 30 pieces of silver and on and on and on. It's a wildly prophetic book. Uh, the second part is it contains judgments, it contains prophecies, it contains fulfillments, it contains visions. It is the second to the last voice of the Old Testament. Only Malachi is a later voice and it is... As many have said, it's the prologue to the New Testament, okay? So Malachi would be the epilogue of the Old Testament. It would start at the Old Testament end and go backwards. Zechariah starts where they're at now and pushes forward. It's a, it's a surge forward of 500 years. Jesus tells us in Matthew, I think, 26, that Zechariah is martyred. So he is, he is martyred. He's killed for his faith. Um, and... Here we are. Let me read you. His name means Jehovah remembers. Let me read you two verses that I think kind of paint the picture of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 10.6 says, I will strengthen Judah and save Israel. I will restore them because of my compassion. It will be as though I had never rejected them, for I am the Lord their God who hears their cries. My grandfather, uh, who was my hero growing up, my, my grandpa was just, I, I didn't have an active father figure in my life, and I found that in my grandfather. One of the most painful seasons of my life was when I finally came to a, a age of maturity to appreciate my grandpa. He got Alzheimer's, and he, he began to quickly deteriorate uh, from a, a memory standpoint, which is just, if you're walking through that with a love, it's just deeply painful, right? Um, it, they're, they're looking at you, and this is your hero, and they're trying to recall your name, and it's just like, oh, man, it's, it's gutting. But there was a, a photograph that my grandpa had, and he had it in his office, and then from his office, it went to his place in the nursing home, and then from the nursing home, I got a hold of it, and it was, it was something that we, we had so much fun with. I was Canaan's age, and I would be running around his office. Guys, show the, show the picture if you have it. Uh, yes, this is it. This is the picture. And yeah, my grandpa loved westerns, John Wayne guy through and through. He was just, he was that guy. But he, I would run around his office as a little kid, and I would hide like this, and I'd say, Grandpa, does he still got me? And my grandpa would say, yep, I still got you, pal. That was his nickname for me. He's got you, pal. So I'm like, okay. So I'd run, and I would hide like right here, and I'd be like, Grandpa, 
Has he still got me? He'd say, I don't know, pal. You take a look. And I'd look up there. Oh, man, he's still got me. So I'd, I'd run again, and I'd hide again, and we'd play this game over and over and over. And I mean, my grandpa was so gracious with me. I would do this for hours of just hiding under pillows, hiding behind the couch, hiding outside of his office, peeking around. And every time he got me, it was like there was nowhere I could go or nothing I could do that would keep this guy and his gun from pointing right at me. That is the book of Zechariah to the children of Israel. They cannot avoid it. The entire book is Jesus pointing to Jesus, directly focused on Jesus. If you thought you could get in here today and you could run away from Jesus, you are sorely mistaken. Because the book of Zechariah is a loaded gun with the bullets of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and it is pointing directly at you. And we can break the entire book down in three different sections, okay? There is an old obedience, there is a new power, and the same Jesus. There is an old obedience, a new power that empowers you to fulfill the old obedience that you've been called to, and there is the same Jesus. Okay, let's jump in. Number one, old obedience. Zechariah 1, 1 through 6, in November of the second year of King Darius' reign, the Lord gave this message to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, and his grandson Iddo. I, the Lord, was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says Return to me. Circle that. Underline it. You could go back through every book of the Old Testament, uh, new, minor prophets, and you could write that at the very top. What is the message? Come back. That's the message. It's not go to this, go to that. It is come back. Please, come back. I'm going to kill you. You can't come back. I'm going to destroy you. You should have come back. That's the message. Would you return to me? What does he declare? Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Don't be like your ancestors who would not listen or pay attention when the earlier prophets said to them, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. He's saying again, don't be like your grandparents who just refused to be obedient. You know the story. They were in the wilderness. They were rescued from Egypt, landed in the wilderness, and within days they were complaining. Within days, they were throwing a fit. Within days, they had something, an attitude about them because there's no food, there's no water. God took us out of Egypt to kill us by starvation. And God is saying, would you just shut up and trust me? Would you just be quiet and listen to me? So he says, where are your ancestors now? Mm, that's a hard question. They are the prophets. They and the prophets are long dead. But everything I said through my servants, the prophets happened to your ancestors, just as I said. As a result, they repented and said, we have received what we deserved from the Lord of heaven's armies. He has done what he said he would do. This, this message of return, return to me, come back to me, don't do what your ancestors did. Learn from their lessons and come back to me. The book of Zechariah and the overwhelming message of the minor prophets is not go do, it's look back and be obedient. You've already been given your answer. It's not new ways, it's old obedience. 
He's saying, I've already told you what you're supposed to do. I've already given it to you. And let me, let me illustrate it, because I think, I think it may get, make it more applicable. Um, and I'm not, I've told you this before, I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching with you. I, I never come up here with like, I gotta tell these people something. Most of the time I'm preaching to me, and if you get something, great. I'm, I'm happy for you, right? For me, years ago, I remember God calling me to write. It was just a, a spark in my spirit. It was a prompting from the Holy Spirit where God called me to begin writing. And I denied it. And I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm not smart enough. I'm not creative enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not going to write. I can't do it. So then I started a master's program. And while I'm in a master's program, a professor sends me an email after the class and said, Luke, you should consider writing. I'm like, okay, you know, no, I... I, I I'm not interested, not going to do it, right? And I feel the Lord prompting me, you should listen to this message. No lie. We're in the sermon season out of Egypt. And I don't know who you are. I still don't know. I'd like to know now. I know it was somebody sent me a package. Listen to this. Anonymously in the mail. That's scary when you're a pastor, right? People love you and people hate you. You're like, oh, better have the kids open this one. No. Um, so... <clears throat> Somebody sent me a package, and there was no return address on it or anything like that. I open up this package, and it is a mock, it's a replica book of the sermon season out of Egypt. Somebody printed off the graphic, they put it on the, on the book, and then they put by Luke Cunningham, and there was, and I got, the, and I'm like, okay, Lord, I think I hear you now. Right? I, I think I hear it was it was solely a message to say this sermon season should be a book. And yet I still denied it. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. And then I roll into this doctoral program and then I have the greatest excuse in the world. I'm writing a dissertation, right? So I, I get my dissertation done and I, I'm I'm filling them out the other day because you, you send them to people along the way who are an encouragement to you. And after I'm done with all that, I'm starting to pray and I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm done with this. I'm I'm ready for what's next. I'm hungry for what's next. Would you open a new door? Would you show me? And God's saying, why would I open you a new door when I've given you the door years ago? I've already told you what I want you to do. What's your next excuse? What are you going to come up with? Too busy? Had your fourth child? No time? Like what, what, what is it? Because you want something new. We spend so much time chasing fresh revelation and do nothing with the revelation we've already gotten. We spend so much time in pursuit of, God, what's next? And God is saying, what do you mean, what's next? You haven't done what was. It's still waiting for you. And look, I don't tell you that story so that you can hound me and bug me and send me more replica books and push me into writing a book, right? Uh, that's not why I'm telling you that story. Here's why I'm telling you that story, because I'm pretty confident I'm not the only one. I'm pretty confident there are those of you that are sitting in here today and God has placed something in your heart a week ago. God's placed something in your heart a month ago. God's placed something in your heart years ago. God has placed something in your heart decades ago and that thing that he has placed in your heart is still laying dormant and you're asking him for fresh revelation and he is saying it's been there a whole time. I already told you, I already called you, I already made it clear to you, I already placed it in your heart. I've already led you to it. My, my kids the other day, we were in Five Below, and my son was like, hey dad, will you buy me the, the basketball goal that goes on the back of the door? And I said, son, why would I buy you the basketball goal that goes on the back of the door when the one that I've already bought you is sitting in your closet and hasn't been used? 
right? You want new, but you've done nothing with the old, right? And look, I don't think God is like this all the time, right? So if you're like, oh man, I missed it 10 years ago. No wonder my life's been around. No, I think God is gracious. I think God is merciful. I think God gives second chances. But I also think there is a really good opportunity to build a theology on this. What does Jesus say? A man reaps what he So what have you sown? He who is faithful with little will be given much. What's the story of the minor prophets? Come on back. I'm still here. Don't do what your ancestors did. Do something different. You already have the answer. Deuteronomy 8 through Deuteronomy 13. I've made it crystal, crystal, crystal clear. I do believe God's merciful. I do believe he's a God of second chances. And I do believe you could start today and he would bless it and it would be fruitful and faithful. And I do believe he has new revelation for you. But I also believe there are some of you that are so stuck on the new that you haven't executed the past. And God, you're not waiting on God. God's waiting on you. I know that with me. I'll put me on blast, right? I'm not waiting on God. God's waiting on me. God's like, dude, I I told you that five years ago. I sent you a package in the mail, man. Like, how do you screw that one up, right? How do you get that and be like, yeah, I don't think God's talking to me about this at all, right? Like, how do you mess that up? What about for you? What's God speaking to you? What's laying dormant in your soul, this old obedience that you have known and you have known for years, and you find yourself looking for the future, trying to chase it, and God is saying, quit worrying about that and do with what I have already given you. Be faithful with what I've already spoken to you. Execute what I've placed in front of you, and then I will open more doors for you. That's the first message of the book of Zechariah is old obedience. We come to the prologue of the New Testament and everything is pointing to, do you remember the old obedience that you were called to? Return to me. Don't do what they did in the past. Learn from that. Don't repeat the same mistakes. Return to me and I will return to you. The second thing is a new power. Not only does he give them a call to old obedience, he, he welcomes them into old obedience with a new power. So right in the middle of the book of Zechariah, Zechariah has eight visions in one night. Talk about way too much jack-in-the-box before bed, right? <laughs> Those tacos, though. Man, they're so good. But so he's eight visions. Where, are even, where, where is this going, right? Um, okay. By the way, we have tacos downstairs afterwards, after party. Shameless plug. Did not set that up beforehand, but there it is, okay? Um, Zechariah has eight visions, and in the middle of his eight visions, he comes about, he has this one vision of a lampstand, and on that lampstand, there are seven spouts coming up from the lampstand, and there are two trees right next to the lampstand, and the oil from those trees is feeding the lampstand, and it, it looks a lot like the menorah. Isn't that ironic, right? And those two trees are feeding the lampstand that feeds the seven spouts that come up from that lampstand, and God comes to Zerubbabel, and he says to him, did you know what I just gave you? We'll pick up the narrative in Zechariah 4, 6 through 7. Zerubbabel says, I have no idea. It looks like a menorah. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Nothing, even, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. 
it will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, may God bless it, may God bless it. Blessed, God is saying to Zerubbabel by way of Zechariah that I have a power for you. And this power for you is going to empower you to do everything that I've called you to do. Let's get a little more contextual for a second, okay? So Israel has no army. They have no strength, they have no resources, they have no money, they have no momentum. The old prophets are literally weeping at the sight of the temple like, man, we thought it'd be bigger. We thought this would be a whole lot better of a temple. They have zero going for them, and yet God shows up, gives a vision, and in that vision, he says, I am going to give you a power, an oil by way of the Holy Spirit that's going to fill you, and it is going to empower you to do the work that I've called you to do. Do you realize that God can strengthen you far more than you can strengthen yourself? This is the message to Zerubbabel. You, you, I, I can, what did he say? Even your greatest enemy will be like a level plain before you. Isn't that a great image that you have this mountain of an enemy before you and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it just becomes a level plain? He's saying to them, I have the power. Let's dig a little deeper with this, okay? So the word used for spirit is ruach. You gotta roll that H at the end. R-U-A-H, Ruach. Come on, try it with me, spit on your neighbor. Ready, one, two, three, Ruach, right? That's the Hebrew word for spirit. The New Testament Greek word for spirit, the equivalent is pneuma, right? So we have Ruach and we have pneuma. Now you need to know this, in Genesis, hovering over all of creation was the Ruach of God, right? Man, it's hard to say that without feeling weird. The second one is with the, the floodwaters that receded. When Noah receded the floodwaters, it was the Ruach of God that receded the floodwaters. When Moses parted the sea, it was the Ruach of God that parted the sea. When the, transform, when, the, when the stubborn hearts in Ezekiel 37 were transformed into obedient hearts, it was the Ruach of God. In Ezekiel 37, when the stubborn hearts, the dry bones came to life, it was the Ruach of God that brought those dry bones to life with Zechariah. The power that is going to rebuild the temple is not by strength, it's not by might, it is the Ruach of God. Here's why that is important, because this power would have been familiar to them. The children of Israel know their history. They're looking back saying, my goodness, the same thing that parted the seas, the same thing that receded the floodwaters, the same thing that did the mighty works of God in the past, God is saying is now mine personally. It was a familiar power with a foreign experience. They knew about the power of God, they had heard about the power of God, but their experience of it had not become tangible yet. And this is what God is saying through Zechariah, you are about to experience that power. If you came in here today and said, you know, I'd like to live the Christian life, but I just don't have what they have, you're sorely wrong. You're sorely wrong. I, I would just like to live faithfully to Jesus, but I just don't have what they have. We all have it. We all, have, if we are a follower of Jesus, we have the pneuma, the New Testament. We have the ruach of the Old Testament. We have the Spirit of God living within us. Listen to Paul, Romans 8, 9 through 11. He says, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. 
You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. Verse 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit that is living within you. Paul is saying if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the same power living in you that raised Jesus from the dead. How do we fulfill old obedience with a new power? How do you break the sinful nature of your past? The old obedience that's been placed in your heart that you know you should have quit looking at that, you should have quit taking that, you should have quit drinking that, you should have quit talking to them, you should have quit doing those things years and years and years ago. The old obedience is satisfied with a new power. That's the message. That's the fulfillment. That is the pointing forward of 500 years to a confused father and an impregnant virgin who have a baby that Zechariah is pointing to. He's saying, when that comes, the new power comes with it. And now you get a taste of it. And the taste of it is stronger than anything you've ever experienced before. I had a buddy who we were, we were helping a friend build a French train, which includes a trench and all this other stuff. All I know is I had a pickaxe in my hand and I had like 50 yards of trenching to do and I was just wailing away at this all day. My neck hurt, my back hurt, my legs hurt, my hands hurt. And this was in my early 20s when I was supposed to be in shape. And I I was just, it, it tore me up so bad. And After that, my friend gets home from work. We're helping him with the trench. He hasn't been home all day because he's got to work, and we're helping him out, right? And he says, oh, man, we should have called my granddad. He's got a trencher. I'm like, what? What? We're going to bury you in this trench if if you're telling the truth, right? And so he gets this trencher, and I mean this thing, you fire this thing up, and all you all you literally, it's just like mowing grass, right? It's just cutting this huge trench in the ground, and it was it was funny because No amount of power that we could generate could compare to that trencher. There was nothing that we could do. Strongest guy in the world cannot compete with that power. That's what we're talking about when we talk about new power. But here is the kick, and I want us to understand this, because I think we have a confused vision of the Holy Spirit and his power as his church, living out old obedience with a new power. Here's where I think we get confused. We have a new power, but no shortcuts. We have a new power, but no shortcuts. Listen to the very next thing that God says to Zerubbabel. Zechariah 4, 8 through 10. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple, and he will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's army sent me. Verse 10. Do not despise these small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. Isn't that amazing? He said, I'm going to give you the greatest power that you've ever experienced. Now go to square one and start. We think, oh, I've got the power. This should be easy. It's never been promised to be easy. There's never been promised shortcuts. 
It's not a shortcut, it's a new power. But the challenge is starting then at the beginning with the new power. If you came in here today and you heard, I'm going to break my sinful nature with the power of the Holy Spirit, it should be easy when I walk out of there. That's the problem. No, it's starting over at the very beginning when that temptation first hits you again and it's stronger than it's ever been and you're engaged in this spiritual warfare to attack and you're thinking to yourself, I thought the Holy Spirit made this easy. No, he doesn't make it easy. He just gives you the power to overcome it. If you will walk with him, if you will lean into his voice, if you will spend time in scripture and you will retreat to the spaces he calls you to retreat, you can win the fight and the fight does get easier, but you have a new power. That's the message. Old obedience doesn't become easy with a new power. Old obedience becomes possible with a new power. But we have to start. We have to dig in. And then he finishes. This may be, out of all of these minor prophets, this may be my favorite section. So we have a calling to old obedience. Do what you've already been told. There's no new revelation for you. You just need to do what you already know you should be doing. Then we have a new power. It's not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And now we roll into the same Jesus. Zechariah 9 through 14 is clear. I mean, it is, it is six books that only point to Jesus. Jesus as fulfillment. And it's, it's two directions to Jesus. Nine through 11 and a half point to the first arrival of Jesus, right? That's going to happen 500 years from the date this was written. The second sections of the book, 11 and a half to 14, point to the second return of Jesus that we're all awaiting for, okay? Can I just have a drink real quick? College is back, baby. <laughs> Okay, so we have these six books. They're all pointing, pointing to 500 years in the future when all of this is going to happen. Some are saying Jesus is coming, and then the others are saying Jesus is coming again. Now, let's just let's do this for a second. Let's all be Jews for a second, okay? You need to understand this contextually so that you can apply it to your life. If you can't grab the context of it, you're never going to make application of it, right? So, what, what is it? Put on your yarmulke. It's time to celebrate Hanukkah. <laughs> Come on. Be Jews with me. We're all Jews for a moment, okay? We are students of Jewish history. Here's what we know. Guys, I'm going to rip through on your sermon notes. You'll be able to see this on the app. You'll see all these scriptures. I'm going to summarize it to you until we get to the good stuff. If you start as a Jew, you know in Ezekiel chapter 34, there was an introduction to you of the good shepherd versus the bad shepherd. And God came by way of Ezekiel the prophet, and he said, the bad shepherds I will condemn, and I will send you a good shepherd. And this good shepherd will protect the flock. This good shepherd will care for the flock. The bad shepherds will leave the flock scrawny. They will leave them beaten up, and they will tear them up. But wait for it, because a good shepherd is coming. In Psalm chapter 20, 23, David arrives and David gives this beautiful poetic lyric that is both prayed and sung. He says, I, what does he say? He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He leads me to rest in green meadows. He leads me beside 
peaceful stream. So David comes along as the harpist and the worship leader for the nation of Israel, and he says, we have a shepherd that's coming, and we will lie next to peaceful water. So he confirms the good shepherd, and he adds this piece of water in there, okay? Now we roll to Zechariah, and in Zechariah chapter 9, God comes out again with good shepherd versus bad shepherd. And he paints this picture of there is this bad shepherd that's been taking advantage of my people. There is this good shepherd that I am sending to you. But he takes it a step further. And he says, when the good shepherd arrives, this is Zechariah 12 through 13, you will reject him and you won't care for him. In fact, you'll just pay him the wages that he is due, 30 pieces of silver, which is what Jesus was betrayed for. And then in Zechariah chapter 13, there is this final verse that paints this picture. It's verses 7 through 9, guys. I skipped all the way down, where the good shepherd versus the bad shepherd, good shepherd is betrayed, and then God sacrifices the good shepherd. Here it is, Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the man who is my partner, says the Lord of heaven's armies. We'll stop right there. So what he's saying is this. We have the shepherd, good shepherd, bad shepherd, Ezekiel. We have David in Psalm 23 saying, good shepherd and streams of life-giving water, right? Then we have Zechariah who says, good shepherd, bad shepherd, good shepherd betrayed, good shepherd sold, good shepherd sacrificed. Then in Zechariah chapter 14, we have this little piece of prophecy in verse 8. It says, on that day, this is the day when the good shepherd returns. On that day, life-giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half toward the Dead Sea and half toward the Mediterranean Sea, flowing continuously in both summer and winter. Back up really quick. Ezekiel chapter 47. This was dove, wind, water, fire. Ezekiel gives this vision of a river that is flowing out of the temple that hits the temple steps that trickles down and it says everything that touches that water will experience healing and will experience favor, okay? So we have Ezekiel who gives the prophecy of good shepherd, bad shepherd, water. We have David who says good shepherd, water. We have Zechariah who says good shepherd, bad shepherd, good shepherd sacrificed and there will be life giving waters. I promise you we're heading somewhere. Revelation 7, 14 through 17. Then he said to me, and this is a, a beautiful piece about Jesus. He is talking and they're asking Jesus the question, who are these people clothed in white? This is after the tribulation, those who gave their hearts to Jesus during the tribulation. These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. There's their sacrifice. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat or sun. For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. There's our shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. There is our water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we have Ezekiel giving us good shepherd, bad shepherd, 
life-giving streams coming from the temple. We have David who says there is a good shepherd and I will rest near streams of life and peace. We have Zechariah who says there is good shepherd, there is bad shepherd, there is betrayal, there is sacrifice, and there is life-giving waters. And then at the very end, we have the prophecy from John in Revelation that says there will be sacrifice, they will be washed in blood, the shepherd will be sitting on the throne and there will be life-giving waters which begs the question, who is this shepherd? Come on, I knew you had it. Who's the shepherd? John chapter 7, Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus arrives on the scene and they're, they're reenacting Ezekiel 47's vision, right? And they're taking these cauldrons of water and they're pouring them down the temple steps and that water is running down and all the children of Israel, they're dancing, they're singing, they're praising, they're worshiping, they're declaring the Psalms, believing that one day life-giving waters will flow out of that temple and they will touch their feet and it will heal their hearts and rejoice deem their land and Jesus steps up John chapter 7 and he declares if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water a couple days later you have Jesus He's confronting the Pharisees, and as he's arguing with the Pharisees, John 10, 10 through 16, he says, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Read it with me. I am the good shepherd. Let's read it again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. There it is, verse 16. I have other sheep also, too, that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Remember, we're Jews. This is everything that we've known. This is everything that we've been taught. The very core of your being is anchored in the historical and major prophetic books. You know the first five books of the Bible. You know what the prophets said. You're looking for the good shepherd. You've sang the hymn of Psalm 23. You have declared, I have a good shepherd who leads me beside peaceful streams. You are listening now to Zechariah. Put on blast the bad shepherd. Call for a good shepherd. Let you know there'll be streams of living water. And one day we will be before his throne. We will see the shepherd and we will experience the healing of life giving waters. And Jesus stood on the planet and he said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. I am the good shepherd. Here's the message. It's always been him. It's always been Jesus. It's always been him. It was him and Ezekiel. It was him when David was declaring it. It's been him through the book of Zechariah. You can't deny it. The gun's pointing at you. He declared it himself. He stood on the earth. They wanted to kill him for it. He said, it's me. And one day, our knees will bow. 
and we will hear from the shepherd again. And rivers of life-giving water will flow again. It's always been him. My wife likes to ask me this question uh, every anniversary. <laughs> she says, honey, why do you love me? <laughs> Does your, I mean, I see husbands look at their wife. You know, I mean, that's, that's it. Honey, tell me why you love me today. And I, I, I remember our last anniversary, we were sitting there at dinner. Darn it, I, I'm crying. What is wrong with me? I'm getting old. I'm getting soft. I cry all the time, right? And so I'm sitting at our anniversary dinner, and I looked at her, and I said, um, I started recounting our past. I said, I remember when we were living in our little, cheap, roach-infested studio apartment. We were so broke, we had no money. We would literally walk to Little Caesars and buy the pizza and skip the crazy bread because we didn't have enough money for it, right? And then we'd come back and have a Little Caesars date night in a little roach-infested apartment that we couldn't afford. We finally moved out of there, and we moved into my in-law's basement to save money. And then after that, we, I got a job at the Ark in Conroe, and I came to Conroe, and I lived at a small apartment behind Incredible Pizza, and we still, we saved every dime that we had. River Point is where we were at. We saved every dime that we had, and then all of a sudden, we, we saved up enough money so that we could buy a house, and we bought a house, and 18 months later, we had an extremely medically fragile child, and after we had our medically fragile child that required so much therapy, that required doctor's visit, I started doing side hustles just to pay for the medical side of things. There were, I was flipping stuff on eBay in the evenings. I was catering oil rig Saturday and Sunday and Monday through Friday I was a pastor on staff at the yard and I was we were just grinding from all of that right and then we worked up from there and after that we started the church and now when we started the church things have really grown and things are great and, and we're, we're in a more comfortable place now don't hear me I'm, I'm not rich I got four kids two still in diapers I'm still grinding right but God's been good. Our bills are paid. We can buy groceries and take our kids to a restaurant. We went to CC's last week, right? Like, CC's for the win, you know? And, and here is what I told Anna. I said, when you live through those seasons together, the kind of love that you forge during those times is unbreakable. The love that you forge through season after season after season of life. And I looked at her, and this is what I said to her. I said, the reason I love you is because it's always been you. It's always been you. I was broke and had nothing, and we were sharing Little Caesars. It was you. When we moved here, we moved into an apartment together, and it was you. We started the church. It was you. You've seen me at my worst. You've seen me at my best. And it's always been you. That is the final message of Zechariah. It's always been Jesus. It's always been Jesus. In the times of your brokenness and deep pain, he meets you there. In the times of prospering and flying high, he meets you there. In the good times, he's there. In the bad times, he's there. It has always been Jesus. But here is the difference. And, and college students, listen to me, because I was you once. 20 some odd years ago, I was you. And I remember walking through different seasons. And now I look back on it, and I can say, Jesus, you were so faithful, but here is the difference between your answer. It's going to be one of two things. It's going to be, thank you so much for always being there, or why did it take me so long? Why have I spent so many years running from you? It's always been you. It was you when I just destroyed my own life. 
It was you when I was getting in so much trouble. It was you when I was trying to figure out where to turn. It was you when I had nowhere to turn. It's always been you. Can you thank him for it? Or do we need to start where we began? Return to me and I will return to you. It's old obedience with a new power and the same Jesus.